Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. I don't think people should be branded as heretics uh, for suggesting that you give Richarlison a start. Extremely proud, obviously I don't talk about him a lot, but extremely proud to, to break these records every time a new one comes along. Uh... Hello and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare to discuss, among many other things, Spurs' 1-0 win over Wolves on the weekend. This course is the podcast that will not suddenly grab the microphone and make a hugely over-emotional speech. Oh, hang on. It probably is. I noticed, first of all, about the, the game, uh, which you know wasn't the best, was not not overshadowed, but certainly enlivened by, the, by seeing the real Ronaldo in the stands, um, which was just fantastic. And it got me wondering, who is the most famous or weirdest person you've ever seen in your travels to... Uh, to the various Spurs stadia the last few years. Well, one that was quite cool was Dimitar Berbatov milling around in an impossibly cool way. Uh, I think this was a couple of years ago. Quite a funny one. This wasn't actually at Spurs. It was at Stanford Bridge the week before, but this was just such a... It just felt so Barclays. I was... It's quite a small toilet in the uh, Stanford Bridge. Stanford where Bridge is this going? <laughs> no, I was just, I was just waiting... <laughs> waiting there to go in and uh, Andy Townsend and Matthew Upson were having a very heated uh, debate around me I just thought this is this is amazing that that reminds me of a good one that I would have otherwise forgotten oh, good so uh, firstly a Spurs one uh, at Barcelona away in 2018 I took a whiz next to Guillaume Balagay in uh, wow. in Camp Nou about 15 16 years prior to that in uh, jumping jacks in Southampton at the urinals, I relieved myself between James Beatty and Brett Ormerod, who had been the strike partnership for Southampton <laughs> in the FA Cup final like two months yeah, before. Yeah, they were really good. That's a great, I mean, what, what, a, yeah. what a great place to take a piss between a, a strike partnership that got to the FA Cup final. It was great. That's amazing. How quickly does it degenerate from what legends have you seen well, to okay. who, have you ha- who have you been in the toilets Should I take us back on track? So where I used to sit at White Hart Lane, Block right, 26. Right, here we go. Um, was I, I was told by the people that sat around me was where Jude Law used to sit when he had a season ticket which was right, right yeah. up through till about I think like 2007 or something like that he sat there unfortunately he only sat there from 2009 so I never saw uh-huh. him um, and Stephen Mangan I think sat in that, part of the, fan yeah, in that part of the ground as well and actually you know, there, there was one game I can't remember which game it was I'm afraid but outside the old East Stand was it Worcester Road was it Worcester Avenue, is it? Worcester Avenue, that's it, you're right, sorry. Yeah. Um, I remember walking along there and seeing, who's that, the journalist broadcaster, used to edit The Enemy, did that thing with Danny Baker, what's his name? <laughs> oh, okay. Was I, was I looking good, yeah? Was yeah, I looking, looking really good? You were looking great, yeah. Danny. We just looking never mentioned fine. it before and it just struck me that now was the time to mention it. <laughs> were you starstruck? <laughs> A little bit, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's understandable. Thank, thank you very much. I should make the point as well, since doing celebrities uh, at White Hart Lane, one of the most famous photographs of the old ground, of course, is that photograph taken on a misty night in the late 50s when Jane Mansfield, then as big and as sexy a film star as Hollywood had ever produced, pitched up at Spurs for reasons that I never explained, and sat, perched herself in a dress that would do well to be described as painted on, that, you know, this sea of male faces, because only men went to football then, many of them still wearing flat caps, staring up at her. That game happened to be against Wolves as well, who were, of course, the champions of England at that time. Spurs won that game. All right, I still think Ronaldo tops even James Mansfield. I'll be truthful with you. That picture is up, by the way, Danny, in the uh, press area at Spurs as you walk from the media cafe through this tunnel towards the mix zone and the uh, and then you go right. up to the seats. That there are a few sort of iconic images from down the years, and that's one of them. 
Dave McKay no doubt pulling up Billy Bremner by the collar and stuff like that. Um, I, to, to that, I reply, Charlie, I dare say it is. <laughs> it's such an amazing photograph in so very, very many ways, which takes us on to the rather more mundane issue of Spurs' first half performance. And we will talk about positively about the win and all the rest of it. But um, for the second game running, they weren't very good. And I can't believe, Charlie, and you know, one hates to, to pull you up, You've actually tried to justify this in a, in a piece you've written that somehow this might be pl- the plan to be useless in the first half. Not so much useless in the first half, more useless in midfield. Slight, there's an, there's an important, <laughs> important distinction to be made here. Uh, yeah, the piece was looking at how big an issue this is. That you know the, the system Spurs play, as we know, has worked very, very well for them. And the numbers from the last sort of 14 matches are extraordinary. Uh, I think it's something like one... What is it? One, two drawn a few, lost one. And, you know, the goals for and against is incredible in that time. But in a few of those games, and certainly the last two, in the first halves especially, they have been overran there. I mean, that's kind of what happens if you play a two in midfield and you're up against the three, uh, like Wolves have, who are really, really good. I mean, Moutinho and Neves, who seem to have been playing together really effectively forever. And I kind of imagine 20, 30 years from now, they still will be somehow. Uh, obviously, Nunez has come in as well, and he looked classy player. Um, so I think you, 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 they do sacrifice a bit of control, but they make up for it in other ways uh, on the flanks, and they have this incredibly solid defence. Spurs just, you know, really don't concede many goals. Once Sanchez is in, there's no doubt that Spurs. Sanchez are not on this concede. extraordinary run yeah. of not concede. I can't remember how many minutes it is, but it's it's a vast number. He's just impregnable. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, so it depends how much of an issue it is. I mean, I think James and I were talking about this before, whether Wolves' dominance, should we say, was a little overstated in that first half, given they, they did play well, don't get me wrong, and they did they created some half chances. And I guess the worry is that a more potent attack than Wolves might have created better chances, might even have scored a goal. But they didn't it wasn't like they were battering Spurs and, and asking Lloris to make save after save. It, I they just had, think they, it, had, it, they, had, they, had, they had 12 shots, none of which um, Lloris was um, in any way inconvenienced by, it's, it's mm. fair to say. But, but, I, but I, was, I was nervous. I was on the edge of my seat. They were going to concede. Do you feel the same way, James? Yeah, I, I, look, I think if you like step away from it 48 hours later, like it's easy to say they didn't really test Lloris and there wasn't really anything to worry about. But when you're sat in the stadium and Spurs are struggling to keep the ball or create anything up the other end, then obviously it's quite unsettling. And although, I mean, you're right to say I don't think they had like a shot on target that really tested Lloris to the limits of his abilities, but they did have one or two... I mean, that header from the header is very Nunes, close, yeah. the kind of flicked header just oh, yeah, wide of the incredibly mean, close. I mean, you know. Absolutely. There were one or two where Lloris wasn't inconvenienced because he didn't bother to dive because he had no way of getting <laughs> to them, did he? Well, he knew, Including right? the header, he just stood there. And Guelish dragged yeah. that one just wide that absolutely. he was Absolutely. Yeah, the two for. I was thinking of, yeah. It wasn't an encouraging first-half performance at all. I, I, that midfield, and obviously we mentioned Charlie, Charlie's written about that. I do think that it causes problems as often as it solves them. And we talked about it, I think, probably after the Wolves game last season. But when you have two players, and it's in particular the two players that you're speaking at the moment, they're not they're not really like showing for the ball from the centre-backs, especially often. So when Spurs are in possession of the ball at the back and trying to build through the pitch, neither of those... I mean, this might be a tactical thing, but neither of those players seem to drop off too often to come and get the ball. Like, you know, Moussa Dembele would have done, or Luka Modric before that, Michael Carrick. Eve Basuma um, if he plays. But, well, maybe that's what Basuma is going to do when he's in the team. Assuming that does happen, but it also they don't offer. You know, you know, we're getting all these crosses into the box now, but neither of those players, Bentancur or Hoiberg, are going to be like surging to make like second man runs into the penalty area either third man runs. So what they're offering is purely in the middle third of the pitch. But when the opposition are playing three central midfielders in there, it, it, rather than two, they're getting overrun in the middle as well. So it, it does kind of you know obviously that is the counterbalance of having back free and free up top and the wide players no, but no, no. it does mean that in the middle of the pitch you're kind of you're like seeding that territory every system has its weakness by definition mm. you can't have 15 players on the pitch so you know people know that Manchester City the way they even Manchester City the great Manchester City they set up their team in a way that you can get behind their fullback Spurs have done it very effectively um, Conte by having five players arrayed at the back vacate somewhat the midfield and you know, that's where people get spurs. But let me ask you this, Charlie. Could it just be, of course, that all all sports coaching is, unless you're a genius, reactive, 
um, have, to have teams just already, you know, the coaches have worked out, we have to outnumber Spurs in midfield to give ourselves a chance. Um, and uh, is it Conte? Um, I'm not going to say he's been found out, but they, obviously they, they know what he's going to do and you, and you react to that. Yeah, and I did ask Bruno Large about that and he talked about the fact they knew that that's where the spaces might be. I guess it's interesting. I also asked Conte and he, he gave quite a funny response because he was kind of like, yeah, this is a tactical thing that... And again, I don't know if this is a slight language thing, but he says maybe for someone it was difficult to understand this because we're talking about tactical situations, which could be read as like, yeah. you plebs couldn't, you know, this is sort of above your pay grade, which is, let's face it, quite possibly true. Um, I don't know the extent to which though as well, he uh, and sort of his analysts watching it might have felt they slightly had wolves at arm's length um, in that first half. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I would I, I would accept that if if Spurs had done anything in an offensive way, mm. um, but they were terrible in the first half, weren't they? I mean, let's be honest. Take all the tactics out of it. Let's be let's talk straight about this. Spurs were useless in that first half because not only were they allowing Wolves to do what they wanted to do, which, as you say, maybe that's the price of doing what you want to do, but Spurs weren't doing what they wanted to do because every single one of them, I think, without exception, on the outfield players, had a poor first half. Mm. I mean, I think illustrated by the fact that Son had one of those games where you think, God, is this... I mean, I know you were particularly upset with Emerson Royal in the first half, James, but but, but Son had one of those games where you, he goes through sometimes where he just he literally can't control the football. There's an interesting thing with Son... Am I, by overreaction, no, were they not No, 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 no I, I agree. I mean, the first half, for sure, was really bad. And actually, I think the first half... Uh, to some extent was so bad it clouded my view straight after the game where my instant reaction was wow that's one that Spurs have got away with I guess then sort of rethinking it a bit and watching some of it back my view now is that over the course of the whole game they probably did enough to win it and Wolves in the second half offer very little but no in isolation the first half I thought was was really bad I mean you gave those shots those shot numbers I think that the general feeling watching it was, God, if Wolves had a bit more cutting edge or a striker, they uh, could be one or two up like they were in this fixture last season. On the, on the Son point, I mean, I think it's a really interesting one and that's something that the fans are talking about and arguing about. I mean, my view is that it's possible to think both that Son is an absolutely world-class player and will end up the season scoring a ton of goals, but I also think it's... I don't think people should be branded as heretics uh, for suggesting that you give Richarlison a start, you know, and I'm not saying necessarily what Conte should do, but I don't, th I, I think you can be of the view that, you know, if someone for a few games looks a little bit off it, you say, yeah, okay, well for this game, you know, you can come off the bench and do the, the last 30 minutes. Uh, you know, Son is not, Son is not going to have an issue with playing games and scoring goals this season. That's not going to happen. But no. I also think you might say, um, you know, we're just going to freshen it up for this one game. I mean, Richarlison did do the things that Son wasn't doing in the first 65 minutes of the games when he came on, like committing defenders, running at defenders, like finding space, getting himself into the penalty area. None of which Son really seems to be even trying to do in the first hour or so of the game for whatever reason. I mean, I think the reality of that is probably, and this isn't to say he wasn't playing badly and, and to put responsibility on other people, but I do think there was an issue with him not really getting the ball in the right kind of areas for him to then turn and find that space. Um, on the broader point of the first half performance though, I, I, and someone tweeted this after the game and apologies to whoever it was because I'm basically stealing a point now. But in the game last season, they were 2-0 down within, I think it was like 18, 20 minutes. And like, you know, as Charlie's saying, Wolves are an incredible defensive team. Like you're not going to get back into a team, you're not going to get back into a game against them once you go that far behind. And I wonder whether there was a sense of let, let, let's just like not make the same mistakes we did in that game and overcommit early on. I honestly think, and I tweeted this before the game about how they're such a nightmare to go behind against. But actually, if you score first, they often can look pretty blunt. I think of all the outside of like the the best teams in the league, you know, the teams Spurs competing with at the, right at the top end. There are very few teams where the divergence between what happens when they score first and concede first is greater yeah. than Wolves. They are, they're horrible to go behind against. You know, we saw even at nil-nil, they call it professionalism, call it gamesmanship, call it whatever. They're very good at slowing down the game, taking their time, and they're, they're really well organised defensively. They're always one of the best teams defensively um, for goals conceded. So, 
yeah, perhaps, perhaps that was in their thinking, and it did. Uh, ultimately, I guess it, it the master plan paid off. Yeah, well, forgive me if I come Danny Blanchflower on this. I mean, go out against Wolves. I mean, of course you've got to be careful defensively. You don't want to concede goals unnecessarily. Spurs have got absolutely tons of talent up the other end of the pitch. Get a you get we get two up at half time and see how that game goes, and well, then we'll see what Wolves have got standing there. I mean, you're right. Conte was hinting at it all the way through his press conference. You saw what happened here last year. Mm. Therefore, he was he was excusing the first half performance. I'm rather less generous. I've got to be honest. Um, the turnaround comes. I was bewildered by one of our leading pundits on the national broadcaster suggesting that Benton Kerr was the best player on the pitch. Um, everyone sees different things, don't they? I thought he was Spurs' worst player on the day. I thought, oh no, put it another way. I thought he had his worst game for Spurs on the day. Absolutely anonymous. Danny Murphy, who's played in midfield for England and Spurs, don't forget, thought he was Spurs' best player. But it was obviously, I mean, to me, Hoiberg's work rate in the second half and the things he was doing meant that uh, he was one of the reasons, along with Kane deciding he was going to try and score headed goals in a new breakthrough for him. And he had three, he could have had a yeah, of headers, yeah. couldn't he? Amazing. This coincided with Hoiberg being touted in the press as the replacement as the defensive midfielder in, in Real Madrid's team. I know Ancelotti likes him. I mean, I think, let's just take that as being probably a little bit fanciful. But he remains utter marmite, doesn't he? I don't know what it is. You, you can tell me, James. Why don't people entirely take to, to Pierre-Emile Hoiberg? I don't know. I mean, that's a really difficult question. And we have kind of our, tried to address it before. Mm. And I think I said last season there was a point where I did like a 180 on Hoiberg. And I can't think which game it was now. Was it Arsenal away, maybe? Possibly. The game where he was kind of basically playing in midfield on his own. I guess he's he's a polarizing figure because I think people have very different opinions on what they want players in that role to do. So I think there are a lot of people who would like a more technical player to play uh, as a kind of number eight in that system. Whereas I think there's also a big kind of school of thought that you want you need someone aggressive and tenacious and physical uh, to play midfield to go and like you know go herring after the ball and make big challenges. And there aren't too many players that, that straddle both of those two skill sets. I mean, let's not let's not forget that we're, we, you know, we're we're not that far away from a European Championship where he was in the team of the tournament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they had a lot of midfield players of extraordinary talent and skill yeah, sets and look, to choose I, from, and Hoiberg was the choice. I think away from the, from the one end of the Seven Sisters Road, he is hugely regarded, but not at the club for whatever reason. I mean, he's made some of the best passes that we've seen in Spurs games in the last couple of seasons. One like little kind of reverse pass through to Aurier at Old Trafford in the six-one. It's like the best pass that a Spurs mm. player made that season properly and then a couple of the ones over the top to Kane the second half of last season would have been among like the best assists that Spurs players provided last season so uh, you know other than Kane obviously he probably has been like the most m- m- let's say eye-catching passer maybe than best passer which I guess you would say was maybe more to do with kind of completion percentage and whatever else but you know he's, that's not like beyond his capabilities clearly he's got a very w- well taken goal at Chelsea last weekend so I'm not suggesting he is like this, this kind of footballing luddite who can't do anything technical. But no, but that is the majority I, 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 of his maybe, work. Maybe that's that is the is, majority though, of his work. But maybe the fact that he does kind of do a bit of both without being like a, a hugely spectacular. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. You, you know, you start. You're starting to aim the hammer at the uh, what I believe to be the the the, the, the nail here. Um, could it be that just clubs have DNA um, and people remember Modric and people remember? Um, Gaza and people mm. remember Glenn Hoddle and they think that's what midfield players have to do but the game changes all around them and you know each of those had their own um, water carrier so to, so to speak and Hoiberg uh, Spurs don't have that creativity from that position anymore and, and the other thing is I think people want people to have 9 out of 10 performances but Hoiberg has 7.5 out of 10 in every game which makes you both essential and invisible at the same time well, that's a, that's a good point, though, about the... Well, there are a couple of things with Hoybier. I think one is the way he carries himself, the way he looks, the optics around him, the fact that he's this characterised anyway as this sort of Danish Viking warrior means that some people love that. Some people love those kind of players. Mm-hmm. Others really don't, and others think there's a, something a bit agricultural about it and a bit basic, maybe. 
and there was a big there was a big split amongst the fan base around the time James is, James is talking about um, kind of early last season having the first season I think the consensus was this guy's great he works really hard he gives it everything then it was kind of a bit like well what else you got you know are you uh, you know are you just sort of trundling around thumping your chest and sort of trying to look hard um, Stefan Freund style yeah yeah maybe <laughs> and I think then then what's happened as as you touched on there Danny if he was the sort of doing the hard yards for a creative Christian Eriksen type, then I think everyone would love him because it would be like our, our midfield functions because of Hoybier. You know, he does the dirty work. The problem is often in games, all the midfield does is dirty work. And so then it can feel a bit like, well, should you be offering a bit more than that? I mean, I, I think he is very good. Um, but that's the, three, that's, the, that's, the, that's the 3-4-3 system. The two yeah, central midfielders exactly. yeah, exactly. have to scrap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all there if is. You talk yeah. about, if, if you talk about Benteke, you're kind of saying most of the same things, right? Yep. He's like a bit technical. He's willing to get stuck in and you know chase people down. And there was another incident that I think I talked about after the Southampton game where he's gone herring after someone and clattered them and put the ball into the stands to no real sporting benefit. But it's got the crowd up and you know it's kind of just turned the dial in terms of the atmosphere and probably helped the team out in that sense. Mm. Um but yeah, you're you're right, Danny. Like if you look at that midfield, the way that they line up at the moment, I I, I don't. You, you, it's not like a destroyer and a, a playmaker, is it? It's kind of two guys doing a bit of both that are kind of restricted in not being able to go kind of too far Seems in either to direction. Me that that is, if you're going to have three ultra talented forwards up the pitch, that is the gig, isn't it? Somebody has to yeah. has to do the, the the you know the shirt sleeves up, up work, and that's what they're both doing. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if one of them was injured or he decided to change or rest someone, What how Basuma will go about this. And Oliver Skip as well. It's a real interesting, you know, they're all slightly different shades of the same player. And it'll be interesting to see, sooner or later, he will have to find the exact combination that, that allows the machine to perhaps function a little bit better than it did in that first half against Wolves. Um, well, can I say what's interesting yeah. on that as well, Danny, is that I've always in as my head... As opposed to what I just said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, almost he, as interesting? Almost as interesting. <laughs> well, two things actually. One is that Bentoncourt, that is is classic because Hoybier, I said, you know, their perceptions around because the way he looks. Bentoncourt is this kind of tall, elegant South American. So I think our biases sort of see him as a more kind of creative player, even if actually him and Hoybier do a fairly similar role. But I'd always envisioned Bentoncourt and Basuma becoming the sort of ideal partnership partly because I'm a massive Basuma fan I think he's fantastic and I think he's played in the two he played there quite a lot season before the one just gone at uh, uh, Brighton um, but it sounds as though from talking to people about this that it's more Skip and Hoybier are sort of they, they're seen by Contes doing one and then Bentoncourt and Basuma are kind of competing with one another and I don't know if that will evolve uh, as the season goes on but I just thought that was quite an interesting characterization of the split of those four players. I do actually wonder with, with all four of those players, whether they'd be better, whether they'd look better in a three rather than a two. Certainly, Hoiberg. I think if you put him in a three in a functioning team with good players around him, I think he'd look absolutely amazing. Because I think like what we deem as his shortcomings would be like masked by other players bringing those things to the table. And I'm not suggesting they change the whole system to make Hoiberg look better because that would be insane. But I, I do, I do think that might be part of the problem. Yeah, I, I, I mean, all I think all players in a two in the modern game, they they struggle. It's 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 it's, it's obvious because you just, the opposition just either bring in their wing backs to play narrower as Chelsea did, or bring back Mason Mount to out to to flood the midfield. I mean, it it really is an extraordinary turnaround for me personally because. In my lifetime watching football, until this business of playing just two, the whole of the project seemed to be from coaches to find ways to play more people in midfield. Um, even Guardiola, bless him, it's clear when there were times when he would he would dispense with, if he could, he would dispense with centre perhaps altogether and just play more midfield players. The wing backs was a way of getting more people in midfield. Going from four forwards to, to two, then one. Um, was a way of just getting more and more people in midfield. Now, suddenly, there are teams who are happy to vacate it because they think that they can do more damage uh, around the sides. Speaking of which, Adama Traore, having spent a little while oiling himself, um, came on. And um, he's just one of those players, when, you, when he gets the ball at his feet, you, you, you go, just in case he does something extraordinary. And I noticed that um, his name has started to appear again in the uh, football tittle-tattle as we head towards the last few a week of the... Transfer window. 
And I suppose I'd say to you, James, that uh, as a right wing back, he couldn't have done any worse than Emerson Royal in that first half. <laughs> indeed, indeed um, I also believe that of Charlie. He could not have done any worse than Emerson in the first half. <laughs> no, possibly not. I mean, I, I, look, look, I mean, without wanting to repeat the things we've said about Emerson Royal like a million and one times over the last sort of 14, well, actually a year, I guess, probably just under. He is a defender. He is a right back. Uh, and his attacking talents are way more limited. So, yeah, in that game, I think if you put Adama Traore in the team, he would have looked better than Emerson Royale did. But in a game, you know, Liverpool away last season, as we mentioned before, yeah. Emerson Royale did very well. He did. Uh, I think Adama Traore would, look, would have looked terrible and maybe Spurs would have lost the game. So it is horses for courses, but it probably is a reminder that we deemed that position a position of weakness last season. And they've signed a player in that position who hasn't been on the bench in the last two Premier League matches. And they're starting with a guy that we all deemed the weakest player in the team last season. Uh, and look, I, I don't want to do a Charlie and big up my own opinions. But <laughs> I did say, didn't I? That really improved the team. They've improved the squad. So, well, well, actually, this is this is kind of the problem, isn't well, it? What, like, like, well, what was was the the performance in the first half uh, of Emerson Royal perhaps uh, thrown into relief by the fact that the one place where they have improved the team at left wing back, um, Perisic, yeah, Perisic, kind of showed it up there. But, you know, he didn't do anything spectacular by his own standards, but he can cross the ball accurately with both feet. His first instinct is to cross the ball early with both feet, which you could, I suspect, both Son and Kane will be. J- joyful for that they were not having this kind of cutting back and all the rest of it. Um, and I thought, hey, but wait, Perisic crosses the ball to the far post so well. Mm. Like it's a thing you don't really actually see that often. He but can like, dig them out. He takes. He like That's... really, yeah. He digs them out right over to the opposite side of the six yard because he's so physically. Like, I think once you get strength. into the rhythm of the player on the opposite flank, and I'm not sure Emerson Royale is going to be the guy to do this realistically. If you get the right player playing on the opposite flank, he's going to get a lot of opportunities. You need someone really fast, like like like, uh, like Adama Traore. Adama Traore attacking, attacking the far post. That's what you need, right? But I mean, his delivery is so oh. good. I mean, I, I really enjoyed watching him play yeah. the second half. He's running towards me like, a, like he's a lot quicker than I thought. He's a powerful runner. He's, like deliver, like I say, his delivery is really good. He's clever. Some of his touches were really good. I like, I, yeah, I'd really, really impressed. I thought he was man of the match. I mm. think he got like the Twitter fan poll man of the match. I, I, I think was correct. I make you right. There. Agreed. I, I thought that was a formality. I mean, I thought on the BT commentary. Sorry, Charlie. Uh, Jermaine Genus said that it was a poor corner. I mean, I'm pretty sure that was exactly what they planned to do, wasn't it? Hundred percent. Play the ball into that area. Yeah. Flick it onto the far yeah. post. Kane makes a run round behind Kilman, was it? Yeah. No, uh, really no it's Collins. Really, it. I think Collins, it was Collins, Collins is grappling with him, yeah. Like a really easy... I mean, yeah. it's like a perfectly worked set piece. I mean, it's exactly what they wanted to do, sure. It was amazing, wasn't it? That was the moment of pure Premier League levels, wasn't it? Um, Nathan Collins had marked Kane out of the game for Burnley last season, had done a similar... Yeah. No, he hadn't marked him out of this game. Kane had a, a few moments. Nathan's a really good player. He's already the best player yeah, in really the Republic good. of Ireland's really team. Um, and he is going to be, I think, a top, top, to use the uh, the correct hmm. um, description, player. Um, but one second there, he gauges Kane physically, forgetting that as well as everything else, Harry's very, very strong. Kane shrugs him off, does the old out and in again, and Nathan might as well have been up the other end of the pitch applauding him. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a moment where, and of course, I hope, you know, because of the Republic of Ireland thing, I hope Nathan learns from that because you just, talk about switching off for a second, that thing that coaches are always talking about, absolutely uh, the case, which takes us on to the fact that uh, every week we get a chance um, for me to be told by people that he won't shag me because I mentioned something else he's done. That was his 250th goal. I am now, find myself in the extraordinary position of having to deal with the fact that one of the set polar stars in my universe that Jimmy Greaves will always be the leading goal scorer for Spurs till I, you know, I'm dead and buried over there under that mountain to my to my east, um, is going to be is going to change. Just let me briefly talk to you about a conversation I had with the Arsenal supporting producer. Before, before he came to work on this programme, we were talking about something else um, over at, at Talk Sport. I remember saying to him gently, because he's, he's, he's a nice man and I like him and he loves his football, and we were talking about Jimmy Grease, and it was clear that he had no idea who or what Jimmy Grease was. And I said to him, I didn't say to him, go to YouTube and watch those grainy black and white films of him scoring against Manchester United from the halfway line. I said, go and look at the figures, the numbers, statistics. And he came back to me, because he's not a stupid lad, said, but they were insane. 
It's insane, some of these figures, you know, the goals per game and all the rest of it. I said, I know. I caught the last two years of Jimmy Greaves' as a very young man. Boy, I uh, caught the last two years of Jimmy Greaves' time at Spurs. And I settled into a position in my life, you know, that the sky is blue, that Marvin Gaye is the greatest singer of all time, and that Jimmy Greaves' record will never be beaten. And I'm glad to be proven wrong because he's going to do it. And he's going to do it, injuries permitting, this season. Hmm. It's an extraordinary thing. That was 250, and we all know he now goes ahead of Aguero for the single goals for a single club and all the rest of it. But it's just, just an, I think you all need to be aware, because you're not old enough to have seen Jimmy Greaves, that's not your fault, just what a momentous thing this will be um, and what kind of cultural figure he will be replacing. Uh, it, it, it's amazing. And um, yes, I love him, and no, uh, he necessarily may not shag me. I, I totally get that. Danny, did you know that uh, Son is only two goals behind Alan Gilzean now as well? Well, that that's... um, He's in the top 10. Yeah, I mean, of course he is, because yeah, he's been fantastic too, and in the shorter space of time, you could argue. No, in that time, um, of uh, from Jimmy Grease onwards, I saw Gilzean and Chivers, and people will not thank me for saying this, but John Duncan was a great striker of the Spurs when they were a useless team. And then, of course, Lineker and Klinsman and Clive Allen and help me with this, uh, Sheringham and Berbatov and Keane and Defoe. And I could go on and on. And Fraser I, Campbell. Would not mention Fraser yeah, Campbell phrase. or Pavlyuchenko. Or into, so what? What was the fellow we got from Sheffield Wednesday for half season? Was he called Booth? Andy Booth. Andy Booth. Andy Booth and yet, you know. Raziak. And they have all... <laughs> Gregor Raziak, Bobby Soldado. And, and they have all clawed at the hard, the hard, cold earth of trying to score goals in the Premier League. And Kane has just come along. And in fact, you know, people say, "Oh, he has to try hard." At times, to me, it makes the thing look effortless. I mean, I know it's not, but he's just he's a phenomenon. Well, like that goal on the weekend, the finish is easy, yeah. but the oh. all the work that goes into it is incredibly difficult and elite centre forward play. You say that. You say that. And the thing that really struck me about the header was how how he headed it into the bottom corner, like the fact that he hasn't like headed it back where it came from, which is obviously the easiest thing, or headed it like into the easiest position in like somewhere near the middle of the goal. He's like nodded it down. He into headed the it corner. into the place where the I mean, goalkeeper like, was least likely to get to, even with a piece of luck. Of but course. I think most players wouldn't do that. Well, they just head it straight forward. Because they think or, it's an open they goal. they it down like where they are. You know, they w- I just don't think many would flick it like that. Or, like back, you know, mm. like flicking it on really rather than... For those of you, for those of you not watching, we're now getting the a very good demonstration about to head the ball the outside of your are, of your noggin. They know what I mean. They know what I mean. Yeah, you've got. It's always the outside of the noggin. You never, have, not the inside. That's. And I, I love that. I mean, it's sixteen to go now. I think that's right to to Jimmy Gree's all time record. During the when he gets the next one, I'll try and do a little chart, something related to Spurs. That's fifteen and fourteen and thirteen. And then I'll get bored with it and drop it the way I so often <laughs> do with these brilliant features that go to make these shows so award winning. Now, that leads us on nicely to the fact that Kane's winner um, was also, because he must hold all records, you know the rules, um, the thousandth goal at home in the Premier League for Spurs. And here at The Athletic, we've asked some Spurs greats for their own personal favourite goal. Um, I'll let you listen to this in a second. And in the second half of this podcast, um, we'll get Charlie and James's and Jackson, my own view of their favourite Spurs goal scored on whichever Spurs home ground during the Premier League era. In the meanwhile, this is, before the quick break, David Ginler's favourite Spurs home goal of the Premier League era. Actually, it's very hard to pick one goal in particular. Probably one, uh, one against Leeds volley from 20 yards. Uh, I think it was a pretty good one. I'm very proud of all the goals are scored for Spurs anyway. So uh, if I can pick one in the league at home, will be this one, maybe one in, against Watford as well, when I dribble the defence uh, before uh, striking the ball in the back of the net. But it is uh, very, very hard to pick one. But anyway, uh, wish you good luck uh, in the future and all the best. Bye-bye. <laughs> Sorry, I need to comment on that. Um, uh, uh, yeah, of course, David has misunderstood the question to which was his greatest goal uh, in a home match. I'm not going to say this because uh, I've worked with him, so I pretend I know him. You know how that goes. 
Um, of course, he's misunderstood it to be what's David Ginner's greatest goal. After the break, we'll come back with, I think, some more objective views of this. Um, here <laughs> on The View from the Lane, we listen to me, Danny Kelly, James Moore, and Charlie Eccleshare. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm James Richardson. If, like me, you've ever felt like one of Cantona's cows watching gamely as football steams past like an express train, then why not join me three times a week over on the Totally Football Show? This Monday, for example, I'll be joined by Daniel Storey, Tom Williams and Benji Lignardo to explain what actually happened this Premier League weekend. Huh. Tuesday, it's the turn of the Euro crew, Horncastle, Honigstein, Alvaro Romeo and Julian Laurence to drop knowledge on all the continent's big stories, including this week, the biggest last-minute comeback in Bundesliga history. Thursday then, it's back to our septic aisle to preview the weekend's Premier League games again with data beta Duncan Alexander and this week, analysis from Carl Anker and Adrian Clark. Join us then for cogent insight, fun and a few feeble puns plus the odd move from me to search for the Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane, the Spurs podcast with me, Danny Kelly, Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore. During that brief break, we've continued to discuss David Ginner's contribution there to our favourite Spurs Premier League goal. We've already admitted that he's really narrowed it down to just goals that he scored and not necessarily all in the Premier League. Yeah, that, that Leeds one was definitely an FA Cup, I think, <laughs> fourth round replay. So, and, he, and by the way, that wasn't even the best goal scored in that game. The, the, Is that the Anderton one? Anderson's yes. Like, like 40 yards. Yeah, incredible. In off the post. Yeah. It was definitely the better goal. I think so, a lot of yeah. listeners have been going that, yeah, you can knock David Ginnler all you like, but he is still, at the end of the day, David Ginnler. Um, let's hear from another Spurs player of roughly the same era. Ramon Vega had his say. For me, one of the memorable kind of goals, I think, at the lane is maybe one, because I still uh, have in my memory this uh, Whitehead Lane going 3-2 up against Liverpool and then uh, last minute McManaman 3-3. Uh, what the game was that at the lane? It's a 1-1, 2-1, 2-2, then 3-2 myself, thinking we're going to win because it was at the 18th minutes, I think, and the 89, the last minute, McManaman scored uh, 3-3. So for me personally, those are great atmosphere but also yeah we were thinking we potentially win against Liverpool at home so that's for me for certain one of the memorable goals at uh, at Spurs March 98 I believe that game was he also referring to a goal scored by himself yeah I mean I think Danny generally I think like on Desert Island Discs it's yeah. acceptable sometimes mm. for you to, for people to choose their own music like Sondheim chooses yeah. one or two of his own and you, you kind of allow it okay Ginola I would say yes Vega eh, you know and I, and, I, and I like Ramon a lot he's a lovely lovely man yep. But yeah, also fair enough if, if that's his most memorable one. All right. I guess it would well, be. Let, let, um, Ram, Ramon Vega, by the way, is the only footballer I've ever met who's been more interested in speaking to me than I have to them. <laughs> like I, I like bumped into him at uh, in Club Wembley at England versus Switzerland in about sort of 2010 or 2011. The Jack Wilshere uh, injury game. Very possibly. I think Ashley Young scored. That's really I was at I that game. And, and this conversation two, two. with Ramon Vega. Yeah, 2-2. Two, two, that does sound right. Um, I sort of made a beeline for him because I'd had a couple of free beers and there was a Spurs player, a former Spurs player in the room and like went up and had a quick conversation and then honestly he carried on talking for about 15 minutes to me, to me. It, was, it was amazing what a great bloke uh, he's, yeah, also, he's, he's also the subject of one of the um, things that's happened to me over the years that I at the time was bewildered by and now I'm slightly regretful um, a million years ago when the earth was young and dinosaurs run things um, I was doing a show with Danny Baker on the old talk radio before it became talk sport and we had two things going on at this time in a very long show we were doing one 
was um, just getting people to write the words Ramon Vega on things, okay? Um, for reasons I don't remember now. And secondly, we're asking the question, which footballer is most likely to be in league with the devil? Um, and we were looking for <laughs> satanic footballers. And somehow people got crossed wires with this, as is so often the case. And for about three weeks, we were being sent to, we said, please stop doing this. People started writing the words very large, Ramon Vega, on the side of churches, um, as if to ward off satanic footballers. Um, and I, I must admit, you know, I'm a pretty great fan of, of, of uh, ecclesiastical architecture. We said, no, no, guys and gals, stop this. We don't want to see any more pictures of lovely Saxon churches on the Yorkshire Moors with the word Ramon <laughs> Vega written across them in whitewash. Um, someone no doubt, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and find a copy of one of those pictures and show it to you next time we're here. All right, I'm going to start with you, James. Um, we'll also be hearing from Jack Pitbrook as well. The four of us will now pick our favourite um, Premier League goals scored by Spurs on their home ground. And thankfully, it cannot be one that we personally contributed to. What's yours, James? So, November 2008, Spurs are bottom of the Premier League. Liverpool, again, a top of the Premier League. Um, interestingly, I, I could be wrong, but I reckon Jamie Carragher may have scored an own goal in that the game that I'm talking about and the game that Raymond Vega's talking about. Wow. I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, Spurs come from behind to beat Liverpool. Bottom beats top. Last minute, injury time. Roman Pavlichenko scuffs one in in front of the park lane. Not like an aesthetically amazing goal, but because it's a last-minute winner and I'm such a massive pessimist, those are the only goals I can really enjoy. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, amazing limbs, great time. Uh, Spurs probably not going to get relegated, it turns out, after all. Though we think they probably were still bottom at the end of the day, but, you know, fine. OK, thank you very much indeed for that. Can we hear now, we asked... Um, Jack Pitbrook to uh, contribute since he's too lazy to actually come on the podcast could he at least make some minor contribution by sending us a voice note of his favourite of course being Jack he then tried to hog the limelight by picking two um, let's hear what Jack had to say so two goals stood out for me both of them Harry Kane both of them to put Tottenham 2-1 up against Arsenal uh, the first is the back post header from the derby in i think february 2015 when spurs won 2-1 uh which created a noise i don't think i'd ever heard before then at the old white hart lane but even better than that i think is kane's goal with his right foot from the left hand side of the box to put spurs 2-1 up against arsenal in the same fixture in march 2016. this is one of pochettino's favorite goals not even so much because of the finish but because of the way that delhi Chase per Mertesacker to win the ball back, backheeled it to Kane. Kane whips it into the far corner. Spurs go 2-1 up, and at that point, top of the league. And the roof just erupted off the stadium. It was so loud, and it really it, it really felt like a moment. Um, unfortunately, as listeners know, Tottenham didn't hold on, even against 10 men, drew the game 2 all. Leicester won that day, went back to the top of the table. So a bit of a missed opportunity as a match, detail. really, but... As a goal, I think that second Kane one is the best that I've seen Tottenham score at home. The, the the one he's talking about latterly there, the shine shouldn't be taken off it by the fact that Spurs didn't win the game. It's so hard with Kane, without going back to it again, he just gets so many and so many important mm. goals and so many goals in, in derbies um, that you know it's, it's almost you could almost do a separate chart of his, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this with our kind of great players and great games. What the context of it is really important. I think the fact that that first one's a winner and that header is an unbelievable header, how high he gets and the power he generates, the sort of the strength of his neck muscles. I don't know. The, the, the other one's probably a better goal, but I think that header, because of it, because it was a winner, is maybe elevated as a moment. And it felt that's like his breakthrough. Yeah. Or sort of like the kind of crystallisation of his breakthrough over a few months, say, that Chelsea game. Exactly. At the start yeah. of that year that we talked about a few times. Uh, through to that brace to beat Arsenal, which wasn't the thing they did especially often back then. I, th I just think, yeah, like, like you say, Charlie, because it was a winner, they came from behind. Yeah. You know, it felt like a big moment, um, although you know, it didn't really have any sort of material output at the end of the season. Didn't they lose to Liverpool then, like a few days later, and it was like, oh, yeah, more more unnecessary details. 
Um, yeah, Balotelli scored, I think. Yeah. His only goal for Liverpool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that, if you're going with a Kane one, I would probably pick that. Um, I, I won't, I'll go next so that I don't get, always get the last word. I think that seems uh, discourteous. Um, and mine is also from a North London derby. Uh, the 14th of April 2010, um, uh, you know, Redknapp's team fighting to try and make some sort of shape of uh, of their time up against an Arsenal team that was still pretty damn good under Arsene Wenger. Uh, nine minutes in, the there's a corner, isn't there? And the goalkeeper, Almunia, punches it clear and punches it to safety, um, or at least apparent safety. person who's played nine minutes for Spurs in the form of 19-year-old Danny Rose um, takes it into his head that he's going to belt this thing and I suppose I would say hope for the best but he probably thinks I'm going to hit this thing with laser precision um, and score this amazing debut goal. Um, I watched it again the other day. Uh, we'll take I'll brook no argument about this. All 11 Arsenal players were between him and the goal um, and he, he belts it. Um, I like the fact that I think Almunia could still have stopped it, but didn't. That even makes it better. And the look on Danny Rose's face as he wheels away, never mind the look on his teammates' face, who obviously weren't expecting it. Um, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a lovely, lovely moment for him, moment for the club. It's a goal in the North London derby. I absolutely loved it. And I always loved Danny in many, many ways, you know. And uh, even, even the, the scratchy end to his career at Spurs, I wasn't that bothered about these things happen. Um, and I don't want to take any personal credit for his development, but I, for the years that he was playing left-back at Spurs, I had a, a seat virtually at pitch level right in front of the press box, so you should know exactly where I'm talking about. I watch football with great intensity. I don't tend to be a shout and roar. I sit there and I'm almost stroking my chin. I'm staring at it, trying to work out what's happening. But occasionally I would shout advice to Danny. I'd played fullback on Hackney Marshes at a very low level indeed. Um, and with great lack of distinction. But it was obvious to me that he was always the wrong side that the player he was playing against. Get get inside him. Um, and I would advise him, not not to the annoyance of my my fellow um, people sat around me, because there was only one Definitely one. not. Danny, hmm. get inside him. And it was probably me, but it may have been one of the coaches. Eventually got it through his skull that he needed to, to his starting. It's because he was so quick, he thought he could start from outside and get back inside again. Um, so his improvement was partially down to me, but he will never improve on that moment against Arsenal. And for me, it was a kind of love affair from there to the Champions League final. Lovely goal, beautiful goal. You told him to score that goal, didn't you? As it dropped out of the air, you said, Danny, can you just score? Uh, I reckon uh, score here. I, mean, I reckon if you, if, you listen to the, if you listen to a clip Carefully, of that, I yeah. reckon you hear like 30,000 people saying, go on. I'm not sure. I mean, it, did, it didn't. It didn't look like a shooting chance, did it? It just. I mean, we normal reaction would be to trap it and then play the long cross field ball out to the far post. But no, I'm going to wallop this, and in it went. Fantastic. The exuberance of youth. I loved it. I absolutely loved it, Charlie. I mean, you, that leaves you since he's taken two. Yeah. Um, and so you've got 996 goals to choose from. Well, I yeah, I was told you know don't pick an obvious one so we don't all end up with the same one because I was thinking the Son one against Burnley, but um, mm-hmm. you know I figured someone else would choose that and someone else did. Les Ferdinand, I believe. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to pick one that I was there for, and actually this is years back. This is this is a very random one, but I happened to be at the game with uh, a friend of mine who's a Spurs season ticket holder. I used to go to your game and often they'd be disappointing uh this was sort of in the mid noughties this is 2005 uh and it was a lovely day in may suppose we're going for the uefa cup but it felt fairly stress-free and uh, they were playing aston villa they won 5-1 and that january andy reed and michael dawson had arrived from nottingham forest reed hadn't scored and was under a bit of pressure but anyway in this game he drives forward and absolutely smashes one past the keeper uh, everyone goes mad. But that put Spurs 4-1 up, I think. I'm pretty sure that's right. Then they won 5-1. It was just one of those very nice, very enjoyable afternoons where everyone was in a really good mood. And it was the start of the Martin Yole era. And actually the following season was when they had that brilliant season and should have come fourth. Um, so yeah, went for that one. You remember this, James? I do, yeah. I think I'm right in saying they needed to win by four goals to go above like Middlesbrough or Blackburn or something. Yeah, they went above yeah. Middlesbrough and Goldiff. I think, And then they lost yeah. to Middlesbrough. They lost 1-0 to Middlesbrough away the next weekend. So that was a bit of a pattern. <laughs> George Boateng scored the, the goal. Um, did you have a second choice goal, James? 
What what ended up on the cutting room floor? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, uh... Charlie, what are you thinking about? Did you have a second choice that you were desperate well, to get Son in? Well, Son was my yeah. second choice, I guess. And I mean, that was an extraordinary uh, moment. To, everyone there was like, you know when you're at a game, you're like, this is a goal I'm going to remember being at for a long while. Okay, I've, I've had time to consider. I know, I know what I'm going to say now. So this was the first goal I saw at White Hart Lane. The first of 617 goals. I was Sorry, wait, sorry, I've got that wrong, haven't I? 615. Premier League, uh, Premier League home goals that I've seen Spurs score. And I did work this out yesterday. How? Have been in proper work. How? So I've got this app called Groundhopper yeah. where you can just like tap in on every game you've been to. And I've been back and I've done all the games that I've been at ever. So I know every football match I've ever been to. That's amazing. Because I'm a tragic loser. Um, <laughs> not so ev- not seen, everyone so says that. Not everybody is of that opinion. At least two other people on this podcast think that. I can tell by it's in their faces. <laughs> um, so it's 615 because... Paul Robinson, as I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, I was looking at, at the away end when he scored. And <laughs> Vincent Janssen scored his only, I think his only goal for Spurs from open play. And I'd left early. It was an injury time against Bournemouth. Why did you leave early? To go and game? Yeah, but I went to go and watch Kingstonian play Bishop Thorford, I think it was. Is that someone. in your big, app? Big, big relegation scrap. Yeah, that'll be on there as well. That'll be on there as well. It was a big game. Um... Anyway, so the first the first Premier League goal I the first goal I saw Spurs score at White Hart Lane was scored by Andy Sinton against Sunderland in November nineteen ninety six. It's a very very good goal. I think if so, I mean it's not unlike that Son goal. Wait, is that the one where you can Son, see you celebrating? That's right, Charlie. You can see me yeah. in my yellow Spurs away shirt in the stand behind the goal. Um, see, I don't think you're a pathetic loser. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Do you think? Do you, <laughs> I really miss do, a lot. But those are two words. Do you think he's pathetic or a loser? <laughs> Look, that's. Uh, I think anyone who's seen celebrating Andy Sinton goal. Say which. Do I think? No, absolutely not. If you're celebrating, if you're if you're on camera celebrating Andy Sinton's goal, you're clearly a legend. It, like if Richarlison has scored this goal, people, I, I, I'll, I'll find it. I'll tweet it when the podcast goes out. But if uh, if Richarlison or Son has scored this goal, people, it'd be like goal of a season contender. Like picks the ball up right up on the byline near the halfway line, like makes a beeline for the penalty area, jinks past a couple of players, and hits a shot in across the far, like. Across the keeper, in off the far post. We, we it's a great, it's a really, a genuine, really, really good goal. The first goal I saw Spurs score. So that's it, Andy Sinton. Uh, really extraordinary in all of this, all those amazing things that Gareth Bale did um, and Robbie Keane did. <laughs> uh, just extraordinary. Haven't even um, m- managed to raise a single mention. It did also. I, f- I fancy myself quite an optimistic person. The glass half full. Uh, Doctor Pangloss uh, would be my hero. But uh, I must admit, this exercise. I find it quite stressful in the end because I, for every Spurs goal I could think of um, that I really loved, I was thinking about great goals the opposition had scored right back to the late 60s. Uh, you know, a diving header by a Welshman called Wynne Davis. Um, Andy Gray's diving header for Everton against Spurs when Spurs were going for the title in the mid-80s. One after another, these terrible goals. I mean, excellent goals by the opposite, but terrible goals for Spurs to concede were bearing down on my soul. Thank you very much for all your reminiscences uh, there. And um, thank you very much to all the other people. That that uh, that article um, about all the other goals, uh, the, the Spurs legends they've rounded up, that's on The Athletic right now. Um, as is... Um, so much other stuff as well. And in case you're not already an Athletic subscriber, remember you can just sign up to read all of that brilliant Spurs coverage uh, this season as well as everything else on the site. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Sign up right now for just £1 a month for six months. Theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Thank you, Charlie, and thank you, James, um, for your contributions. And thank you all very much for listening. If you've enjoyed it, tell other people about it, particularly if they don't like Spurs. We'll be back on Friday afternoon, by which time we'll know whose Spurs will be playing. Yes, my friends, in the Champions League. Cheers for now. The Athletic.